Well, I want to share with you what I mean by that as way of introduction this morning. And that is this, that there is a little sculpture, if you will, ceramically made, and they would use that at funerals by family members to grieve a loved one. And they would cry into that bottle, and then they would seal it and give it to the one who was uh, usually the spouse or the parent if it was a child, and, or, the, or the closest, oldest uh, child of uh, the one who deceased. And what they said is, at the time that those tears of the people who cried into that bottle, whether it be the professional mourners or their family members, were gone, then the grieving period should also be done. And uh, over time, they began to make the bottles more airtight so those tears would last longer. As a matter of fact, if you've never seen one, I have a small one. They had bigger ones. But generally, they were quite small. But they had to make them bigger because ceramics back then weren't as finesse. But this is one right here. It's uh, a recent one. This is called a, a lacrimé jar. The lid comes off and you cry the tear. You put it back in and it's sealed. So you carry all your hurts. And you pass that on to generations. And that's what that was for. So I have one of those today. And now what they do with those is they offer those as bereavement gifts. It was reintroduced in the Victorian era. For a while, that practice went out. But it, in some circles, it's quite common. But not, not around here. I've never seen one before. Never heard of it. But I, I want to share with you that the word lacrime is a term that also has some interesting facts. And I did a little research this morning for you to understand that uh, we tear up, we cry, and those tears come from us. And I wanted to know where they come from. Well, they come from lacrimal ducts, lacrimal glands in our eyes. Did you know that each person cries five to ten ounces of tears every single day? You say, but I don't feel them coming out. It's because it's released when you blink across your eyes, and it goes down through a, a duct into your nasal cavity and goes out that way. Didn't know if you knew that. But sometimes that's why you can taste your tears and also why when you cry, sometimes you stuff up. Especially those real heavy tears. That's because your nasal cavity is filled with all the things in that. But tears have layers. I had some interesting facts about them. There is three layers, oil, water, and mucus. Water contains electrolytes and proteins and other things. Various fats in the outer layers allow a slower evaporation. So when the tears wash across our eyes, they start at the top and move down, that our eyes stay moisturized in dry conditions. The specific composition of tears change day to day depending on your general health and other conditions. Now, I mentioned that they go into your nasal cavity and they become part of nasal fluid. But did you know you have to have tears every day? Because that fluid on your eyes is actually tears. It's not just when you blink they get wet. Those are tears coming from those glands. Now, a lot of us think that tears are just things that we cry when we hurt or, or laugh too hard or, or are angry or different things. But that actually is an overflow 
because there's not enough uh, space in those uh, ducts for those tears to get through to the nasal cavity, so they come out on your cheeks. Didn't know if you knew that. I didn't know this. And there are three types of tears. The continuous ones are the ones that keep our eyes dry. The reflexive ones are when it's too cold, too light, um, windy, or you get onions or um, uh, foreign object in your eyes and just starts watering. And then the psychogenic are the ones that are for emotional reasons. Did you know animals shed tears also? But the only one that sheds emotional tears are elephants. Didn't know if you knew that. Well, anyway, those are a couple things about tears that I wanted to share with you. And there's a reason why. Because your tears are important. And if you hold them in, you have some problems with grieving because you're stuffing the pain rather than letting the tears do the cleansing work because there's a fluid and the part of the fluid in that tears has the thing that gives you the sense of cleansing, of getting rid of toxin and poison and making you feel better. It actually releases endorphins into your body that make you feel better after a good cry. You ever heard someone say, I need a good cry so I can feel better? That's why. That's what happens. So I wanted to share that information with you about tears. So when I share some things a little later in the message about them that are actually occurring in the story, you're not going to have to wonder, well, I wonder what kind of tears those are, where they came from, how many tears is she crying? Because those are all questions that are relevant to this story. But I want to back up just a little bit before we look at this woman who's crying over Jesus' feet. Jesus in the Gospel of John, a third chapter, says, If I'm lifted up, I will um, be lifted up and draw all men to Myself and will cleanse the world, will heal and draw all nations to Myself. You see, Jesus is very clear about who He is. I, I often used to think, well, He was born as a man, He had to just kind of figure this stuff out, who He was as He went along. But there's a part of me that understands a little differently that when you've got God in you from birth <laughs> and you're all God, you already know this, that you're different than others. When you have the ability to heal, to raise the dead, you know this. One of the things about Jesus that we don't think about is that He had all of the Messiah qualities and miraculous powers that they looked for in a true Messiah. It did not matter whether it was a healing called raising of the dead after four days whether it was giving sight to the blind, that's the second proof. The third one was healing a deaf mute. And the fourth proof was healing a lame person. There's different reasons for each of those as to why they are messianic signs. But whenever Jesus performed a miracle or anybody else at that time did something that was miraculous or was reported as miraculous, the temple would send out a committee trying to find out if that was the Messiah. You may remember John the Baptist in prison. He sent reports of his, from his own disciples out to Jesus and said, are you the one? Or are we to wait for another? And when they watched Jesus for one hour, He did all four of those signs. And when they asked Him, are you the one? He said, 
you saw what just happened in the last hour. And he quoted those four things that, he, that I'd said with the Messianic proofs. He said, now go tell John what you saw. And John was convinced Jesus truly was the Messiah. And if you are not convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah who was to come and who is with us, the one who redeemed us by the sacrificial death on Calvary, if you're not convinced of that, you're going to have some struggles in your life because you don't know who He is. All of life is based on your perception of who Jesus is, even when you do not believe in Him. Now you say, well, Pastor, how's that true? Because Jesus has to rise up for healing, for restoration. He's the only one that can heal hearts. He's the one anointed to break the chains, whether it be addiction or bondage or wickedness or evil spirits or sickness or any other thing. Jesus Christ is the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ alone. There is no other. He is the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the earth. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one referred to as the Lion of Judah in the Old Testament. The people say, well, we don't know. Well, we do know. He is that one. He also is the gentle shepherd, the good shepherd, the one who is faithful. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He is our hope and the lover of our souls. I could go on. There are so many things He is, but if you don't know who He is, none of this will apply to change your life. You need to know these things for that to be true. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we find the following words. Do not let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality that is yet to come. Christ Himself is the reality. Without Jesus, you don't have touch with reality. And people say, well, you know, I'm not real sure if He's going to help me, if He's really God's Son. I kind of do, but I, I kind of don't. Like the man whose son was struggling when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. A lot of us say, I believe, help my unbelief. We need to get to the point where we say, I believe. And once you get to that point, you will not question that Jesus is who He is, can do what He does, and when you exalt Him, things change dramatically. I don't know how to explain that real well, but I can tell you like this. He takes what's broken and restores it. He can take a broken marriage and heal it. He can break uh, chains off of those who've been in bondage to various things for years. He can do that. That's what He does. That's who He is. And that's His task. In Malachi chapter 4, it talks about what He has done. It's the last four or five verses of the Old Testament before Matthew. And these are the words that we read. To you who fear My name. Now, He's talking about 
Jesus Christ and the Heavenly Father, to those of you who fear His name, who honor and respect God, who exalt God with their actions, the Son of Righteousness, that's another title for Jesus, shall rise up, shall be lifted up, shall arise with healing in His wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. That means you're... A famineless living, the part of your life that has been lean and not prosperous, when you belong to Jesus Christ, He's going to prosper you in the work that He set before you. So you're going to grow fat like stall-fed calves. You'll trample the wicked. A lot of us still fight the wicked and see that it's a, a battle with an enemy, but that battle has already been won through Jesus Christ. It's not... A fight we engage in, we trample it. I'm done with that. It's behind me. I'm done with the enemy. The enemy is defeated. The enemy just keeps coming back up and makes me think that I have to engage. I do not. Neither do you. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, when He rises up with the healing. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded in Oreb and all of Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And, verse 6, he, listen to this, this is where we're going this morning, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now I'm going to give you a little hint as to what's to come in this message so you'll be ready. Now it says that it will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. By turning it means to remember. To call to remembrance. Or to turn to memory. It's not like a father can forget their children, but it says the hearts of the fathers to the children. Not just their own, not just immediate, but all, including future generations. And when it says hearts of the children to their fathers, you would think that that word fathers would be singular. That the children would turn to their father. But it says fathers, which means previous generations that they will begin to remember them and honor previous family generations. And once they do that, healing rises up. As a part of that healing, that remembering or turning of the heart. We understand turning of the heart doesn't mean that your heart is bad. It means your heart goes in that direction, from a different direction. Kind of like turning 180. You turn 180 in another direction, turning the hearts, remembering where you came from, and remembering that you have a part in history for the next generations. That's huge. Without the power of Jesus Christ, you're going to be struggling. And that's not good. So those fathers need to be remembered. 
And today we come to a story of a woman, a nameless woman. There are other stories of Mary, Martha and Lazarus' sister, who anoint Jesus' head with oil in Bethany. This is not that woman. This is a different woman. We do not know her name. And in this story, Simon, who is a Pharisee, has invited Jesus to a meal. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of background so you understand the better picture of what's going on here. When Simon invites him to eat, it's not like, hey, let's go out and grab lunch. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. Because at this point in time in Jesus' ministry, many people are saying He's the Messiah. Simon is a Pharisee. I believe he was once sent to investigate his miracles to see if he was a prophet or a Messiah. And so he began to see what Jesus was doing and he wanted to invite Him into his house so he could talk to Him further about His qualifications as Messiah so He could understand and learn if it truly was the Messiah. He was doing His job. But He didn't do it on a spur of the moment. It wasn't a whim. He went there with a task of inviting Jesus. And when you invite someone who's prominent in the culture as Jesus was at that time, you didn't have closed-door meals. Those folks who were more prominent and could invite Uh, people of higher stature in that society had rooms called banquet halls. Now, please don't think of a banquet hall as something where you got these long tables and it's a big room and you go in and it's not like that. It has three walls, a roof, and an opening to the world around it outside. That's the dining area. So, the table was set U-shape or horseshoe shape, if you will, with an entrance in the middle for the servants to serve the people on the outside edges. But all the people passing by near that house, you know, it wasn't like now where you got fences and doors and walls and all that. People could see. And they could see this banquet hall because it was open. It was large. And Jesus was invited to that. So that means this meal was ready ahead of time. They invited Him in Simon did. And they invite him into the house and Jesus sits down at one of the positions at the table. We could go into which position depending on what Simon thought of Jesus, but that's irrelevant right now for this story. What matters is that Jesus sits and the table's about a foot high off the ground. Not not like chairs and tables like we have, but they have little mats. And it says He's reclining there at the table. With Simon. And that is a key to our story. Because when Jesus was reclining at the table, it means he's kind of like propped up like this with his feet extended behind him away from the table. Kind of curled up with your feet out. It's kind of gross to have your feet at the table, you know what I mean? So the feet were furthest part of your body away. And those feet were visible. Why? Because when you enter into someone's property or their home, you take your shoes off. This is their custom. 
So it wasn't something, well, why did he? It's because everyone has their shoes off and everyone's feet are sticking out. It's why people did a lot of foot washing because their shoes were taken off and it kept the house clean. That's why they would do that. The servant would wash the person who's a guest of the master's feet when they came in to keep the rest of the house from the dirt. Well, Jesus is laying there and reclining at the meal, and a woman comes in who's a known sinner. And the reason she comes in is because she's passing by and sees Jesus. Now, she knows who Jesus is. There's no question in my mind or anybody else who's ever talked about this passage that she knows who Jesus is. Very sure. And she believes one thing. He's the Messiah. She has no question in her mind, He's the Messiah. He's the one. Not needing to investigate, not needing to question, but rather, He's the one. And as she's on the street, it means that she has probably found her occupation in immoral ways. The way they would call her a sinner, a known sinner, is probably by the way she dressed and what she carried. One of the things we find out that she carried was an alabaster flask of perfume. Perfume was only carried by those women who made profit by smelling nice and selling themselves. Yeah. That was her job. And she was a known sinner. And here she comes into the Pharisee's house. This man who's high, mighty, religious guy, very moral, clean living, doesn't want any flack or any problems in his life, wants to serve God and help others do the same. And he's part of the, so important, he's on an investigatory committee of the temple to come see if Jesus is the Messiah. So he's, he's got prominence. And here comes this woman. And the man who is Simon knows that she's a sinner. And she sits, uh, where, comes in where Jesus sits and brings her alabaster flask and stands at His feet behind Him, weeping. This picture, if you're not sure what this picture is about, I want to take you a little further into her mindset. A person doesn't just say, oh, I want to do this for my occupation because it seems like a good idea. I've talked to a lot of people who've gone into bad things and done bad things just to make it through because they had no other choice or so they thought. It wasn't their first choice. It was their last. It was the only hope they had of making a living. Probably because maybe she was had trouble with infidelity. Or maybe she was divorced and now she can no longer marry. But she was put away. So she was just seen as property, something to be used. Do you think that a Messiah, 
a king of all creation, would have time for someone whose life was nothing but a train wreck. Do you think he might be too busy? As the temple ostracized women, and especially this kind, if she was caught in the act of being an adulterous woman, she'd be stoned to death. So she walked around in shame, guilt, and she walks up into a house she's not welcome in and stands behind Jesus because she's heard that maybe, maybe He will understand her plight. But I believe that something else greater than this has happened. And I'm going to pull you back about an hour sooner in the story. Jesus is on the way to Simon's house and this woman on the street sees Him and says, I'm unworthy. And He looks at her and says, for God all are worthy. You are welcome in the kingdom. And she's never heard these words before because no one in this situation has ever said things nice to her without expecting something in return. And Jesus would simply say, I will bless you. I will bring life to you. I will bring hope to you. You can live a different life. You can live with this life behind you. You can leave this life of sin and go some way other. You can do that. And gave her maybe some healing of disease or, or a demonic possession or whatever it is in her mind that said, I can't change. So then fast forward, she comes weeping and I think she's grateful. The first man that didn't try to take something, steal something, ruin something, destroy something in her life, and it's Jesus. And she was waiting for Simon to prove Jesus a fraud so she would know that Jesus was not the Messiah. But she kept watching and seeing that all He did was Messiah-type things. Even for her. And she stood behind Him weeping. And I believe in her mind, she wasn't just weeping for herself. I believe she may have had a lacrime jar with her and all the tears of all the generations of her family with her saying, you can't be different. And all those voices in her head saying, you can't rise up from where you are. That you cannot be a better person. That there is no hope for you. And all those voices and all the years of tears of her generations that came before her and her father and his father and his father saying you'll never be different because you're in a generation of family that goes this way. This is your lot. And the tears that those family members cried, she's carrying them in her heart, if not in that bottle, saying, I wish life could be different. And she's standing behind Jesus with hope in her heart, saying, maybe, maybe this is true and all this can be gone. And I can finally let go of my pain. 
I can finally let go of the hurt of all the years of all my family members and everybody who said that God can't possibly care for us and find hope. And she stood there watching. Crying. And she gets to her knees and washes her feet with her tears. Some have said that she did have a lacrimate jar because the tears that a person cries aren't enough to wash feet. So she'd need some help with some other tears. All I know is it says her tears. Whether it was the family tears that intermingled with hers or not, I don't know. But I do know that she grieved over the family history because he was turning the heart of a daughter of God to her father's who came before her and remembered where they came from, if only they could have seen this day. Well, your daughter and your granddaughter and your great-granddaughter and your great-great-granddaughter your great-great-great-granddaughter is coming face-to-face with the Messiah says it doesn't have to be that way. And she's washing his feet with her tears and her hair is pulled down in shame. Because back then, women kept it up or covered. And she pulled it down in her shame of her hairs, wiping Jesus' feet. And I think those tears are rising up to the heart of Jesus. And she has her flask of perfume. And she anoints and kisses his feet. Nobody in their right mind would do that if it wasn't real. You're just not going to do it. I think she poured years of grief that day onto his feet. I think she poured out every last bit of who she was onto his feet. And when she did, he let her. Sometimes the greatest gift of love is allowing someone to love you. She was loving Jesus with all she had. She didn't have anything else to give but her brokenness and her perfume. She didn't have a towel to dry His feet with, to wipe them with. She used her hair. She used what she had to say, I love you to him. Thank you. Simon's watching this. And he's got his answer. This isn't the Messiah. He even says later in the text, and he said within himself, no prophet would allow this kind of woman to touch him. Must not. That's why he said that. He was doing the test. 
And Jesus, knowing what he said, told him a story about forgiveness. Then he looked at the woman and said, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Live in peace now. Last thing he tells her is go in peace. But the word in there is actually in two. Start living a life of peace. She hadn't had it. That's the clue right there. She hadn't had it. And so here's what she's, he is saying to her. After she surrendered to Jesus, all she was, he looks at her and says, Rise up. You are forgiven. Rise up and know that what you're doing here in this place will live as a memorial to you forever. What you do now will be told for generations of your love for me. And there's Simon condemning the act itself. I understand how Simon thinks, but this isn't about Simon. This is about the tears that she's cried that rise up to the heart of Jesus and He sees her as a child of God. And I promise you today that if you had the ability to have a tear bottle and those glands and all the generations of your family would fill up something a lot bigger than this. All the pain, all the hurt, all the generational curses, all the struggles. I imagine a hundred bottles that size wouldn't fill it all. But the only place to take all those years of pain when you turn your heart to Christ is to bring all the generations heard that never knew where healing was. Say, God, I lay my father at your feet, my mother, my mother's mother, my mother's father, my father's father, my father's mother. All these people I'm laying at your all the hurt of all the years. It says when we sing, all the fears and all of all the years are met in you tonight. All the hopes and all the fears when we sing that song. Doesn't it say that? They're met in Jesus Christ. And we've lived in fear because of what we can and cannot be and who we think we are and are not. And God said clearly, you are in His image. And you have to learn what that is. And this woman had to learn that the image of God that He was painting in her and showing her who she truly was, not what the years told her, but what God was telling her were completely opposite Is it a wonder that tears came because she's letting go? Letting go of years, generations of hurt, because this is the only one that can heal even generations. Is it any wonder that she's going to pour her most precious gift at his feet in love? Because she knows at that point forward. Her life is not what it was going to be. She saw her future and future generations change because of that man. That Messiah. This is what she experienced. And so this morning I want to say to you what I believe Jesus is saying to her. That when you love Him, and love Him a lot, 
you will show it to Him. Not as a way to get His favor and acceptance, but as a thank you for what He has done for you. You see, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is inactivity. Faith acts. If you don't believe, you won't act. This woman's putting her money, her tears, what her faith is. She acted. And so I believe Jesus is telling you today, you are forgiven. You can rise up. Church, you can rise up and know that today what you do can live and will live as a memorial to you and to Him forever if you lay it at Jesus' feet. If you lay it at His feet. Humbly saying, Lord, thank You. Take all the years of all the hopes and dreams and I lay them at Your feet and I exchange it for whatever you got for me going forward. Because what I've got expected going forward with just this life isn't so pretty. It's more of the same until you die. And I want what you do next here today to live as a memorial. To dump out the tears that you've held and the questions you've been afraid to ask and just put them at the feet of Jesus today. Say, Jesus, I love you. I need you. I'm yours. I, I, I don't know what else to do without you. Take me as I am. And please, 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 please accept me. And he'll say, yes, I do. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, even in the generation right before me with my father, there was so much pain in this world inflicted. And today I come before you and I'm asking you to receive the tears of those who cried because of that. And the tears that weren't cried that caused that to be inflicted. Heavenly Father, there's so many hurts in this world that have never been brought to your feet. And I believe today you're calling us to bring all the hurt that we know of to be healed. Whether it be our own, our family, our friends, our cousins, our people who've gone on before to just lay it at the cross and get it reconciled. That going forward, Heavenly Father, that won't be an indicator of life, but rather an indicator of past life. So God, renew us. Make us like you. So that we as your people will reflect the healing that knowing you brings. Amen.